excuse me. Our scripture reading will be Job 23, 1 through 10. Then Job replied, even today my complaint is bitter. His hand is heavy in spite of my groaning. If only I knew where to find him, if only I could go to his dwelling, I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would find out what he would answer me and consider what he would say to me. Would he vigorously oppose me? No, he would not press charges against me. There the upright can establish their innocence before him, and there I would be delivered forever from my judge. But if I go to the east, he is not there. If I go to the west, I do not find him. When he is at work in the north, I do not see him. And when he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. But he knows the way I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold, says the word of God. You've been with us uh, for the past few months. We've been working through the book of Revelation in an expository way, which basically means word verse by verse, taking each chapter as it comes. Um, and so we're taking a little bit of an interlude because we've got a guest speaker this here on Sunday, and we're going to do something a little different tonight. I'm actually going to um, not preach through this passage verse by verse, but use it more as a launching point to do a meditation uh, on the issue of suffering uh, and meaning. Um, if you know the story of Job, Job went through the ringer. Um, he lost his family. He basically lost his wealth, everything, and experienced immense suffering and grief. And it's a, it's a really interesting story um, that I think helps us understand deeply, more deeply, the human condition. And to illustrate this point, I have a, a quick scene I want us to watch from one of my favorite films. We're going to go ahead and play that for you to open us tonight. You mock my pain. Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. I remember this farm boy of yours, I think. This would be what, five years ago? Does it bother you to hear? Nothing you can say will upset me. He died well. That should please you. No bribe attempts or blubbering. He simply said, please. Please, I need to live. It was the please that caught my memory. I asked him what was so important for him. True love, he replied. And then he spoke of a girl of surpassing beauty and faithfulness. I can only assume he meant you. You should bless me for destroying him before he found out what you really are. And what am I? Faithfulness he talked of, madam, your enduring faithfulness. Now tell me truly, when you found out he was gone, did you get engaged to your prince that same hour, or did you wait a whole week out of respect for the dead? You mocked me once, never do it again. I died that day. You can die too for all I care. Oh. As you wish. Oh, my sweet Wesley, what have I done? Ow. an iconic scene. I love the very first line uh, that, that he shares, the, the dreaded pirate. 
uh, Roberts says, life is pain, your highness. Any, anyone who tells you different is selling you something. Life is pain. This is true uh, of the human condition, of what it means to be human. The reality is, is that we live on the other side of the Garden of Eden, where God had once created the world in the way it should have been. And now we live in the world that is unhinged, nothing like God had originally in mind. And because of that, all of us will see this theme over and over again, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, will at some point experience suffering or pain. No matter how wealthy, how smart, how savvy, how healthy, and how fit you might be, at some point our bodies will fail, will experience heartache. In the case of uh, the Princess Bride, there was, there was a heartache, there was love that caused a terrible grief. And no matter what, at some point, all of us will face that to some degree. There's a quote by Tim Keller, and I'm borrowing a bunch from him tonight. He has a wonderful book on, on tragedy, pain, and suffering. I, I quote it here. He writes this in his book. No matter what precautions we take, no matter how well we have put together a good life, no matter how hard we have worked to be healthy, wealthy, and comfortable with friends and family, and successful with our career, something will inevitably ruin it. No amount of money, power, and planning can prevent bereavement, dire illness, relationship betrayal, financial disaster, or, or a host of other troubles from entering your life. Human life is fatally fragile and subject to forces beyond our power to manage. Life is tragic. Thanks for the pep talk, Tim. It paints a bit of a dire picture but I think there is something very sobering about what he is trying to communicate. And I know some of you, as you're hearing me say this, you're, you're in a great spot right now. Spring is in the air. School is almost out. Some of you are, were saying that you have two weeks left. That's an exciting time. It's almost summer. And you've got your whole life ahead of you. And I don't want to rain on your parade, but there is a hard truth. I think all of us fall into one of three categories, and you can relate to either one of these three. The first is that you're in a season of hardship. Perhaps you're in a season where there is a struggle, where you are experiencing suffering on some level, whether that's mental, physical, whatever it might be, relational. Perhaps that's you right now experiencing that in this season. Or you're in the second category. Maybe you're not in that season right now, but you know someone who is. You know someone who's struggling with their mental health. You know someone who's struggling uh, with, with, with uh, loss and grief and heartache. And you know that person family member, or a friend. Or number three, you or somebody you know will be in a season of suffering at some point. So regardless of where you are right now, I think all the things that I'm going to meditate on tonight hopefully will connect with you in some way. And the question that I want to chase after is that if suffering is inevitable, if there's no way around it, the question I think we have to answer is how then do we suffer well? And what I have for you tonight is less of a technique uh, and more about a worldview and a way to think about suffering from a large perspective. Um, <clears throat> there are various worldviews that sort of help explain the problem of suffering. Because indeed it is a problem to, to experience and walk through life and experience sadness, experience death, experience grief is inevitable for all of us. And there are different ways people see the world and try to interpret it. One worldview world might be the Hindu worldview, 
If you're a Hindu, you may know the, you may be familiar with the street name uh, karma is the term that you might use. What goes around comes around. Um, or what you get what you deserve and you deserve what you get. Right? Hardship is the byproduct of our own bad decisions, whether in this life or in a previous life. So if you lived a previous life in another uh, reincarnation, then perhaps your next life will be better or worse, depending on how you behaved. Another worldview might be the um, Buddhist worldview. The Buddhist worldview says that all pain and suffering are a byproduct of desire. And so the theory is that if you can eliminate desire by doing so, even if that's even possible, but if you can completely eliminate desire, then you, by default, will eliminate suffering. We have these four noble truths of Buddhism, if you're familiar. There's all of life is suffering. The cause of suffering is desire. Suffering ends only when desire is extinguished. And number four, this can be achieved through the eightfold path to enlightenment. The third worldview is the Islamic worldview. Um, everything that happens to you is destiny. It's, there's a big uh, uh, emphasis on fate or fatalism. Good or bad, whatever happens in your life is the will of Allah. And this actually has roots in Nordic pagan religions. We see this throughout history as sort of whatever happens in this life, ultimately you have no control over whatsoever. Number four, we have dualism. This is the Star Wars view, right? It's about finding equilibrium. This is good versus evil. This is dark versus light. This is the dark side and the light side. This is this, this constant cosmic battle for finding that equilibrium. And so whenever... Uh, there is suffering. It is a byproduct of trying to meet that equilibrium. There's going to be good and bad, and there has to be balance in the force. Notice what all four of these worldviews have in common. They all see pain and suffering as a normal and a uh, necessary part of the human experience. So whether you're a Buddhist, whether you're Hindu, Muslim, or you're a Jedi Knight, all of these things um, are all experiencing and seeing pain, not as a shock. They are a part of life. And they also create space uh, for pain and suffering to be a good thing in the development of your character. So there, there are some things about these different worldviews that are indeed true. But here's the thing. I don't think most of us who have grown up, I, I would guess most of you have grown up in the United States, I don't think most of us are as influenced by these worldviews as we are this fifth worldview that I'll share with you. The fifth option is the Western secular worldview. This is based on the idea of natural, naturalism, stemming from the Enlightenment, which began in Europe, but eventually moved over here. Um, we have this idea of naturalism, humans being evolved, that everything around you is a byproduct of chance. And with that, everything is an accident. There's no design it's all uh, just chance that everything happens. Uh, there's no meaning or purpose behind suffering. It simply is. And there's a famous line uh, from the atheist Richard Dawkins who wrote a book um, on Darwin, and he said this, the total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent uh, contemplation. In a universe of electrons, of selfish genes, blind physical forces, and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason to it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe is precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, 
no evil, no good, nothing but a pitiless indifference. Friends, this is the philosophy okay, of what happens in the secular Western worldview. Ultimately, there is no point to suffering. There's no meaning. Everything is by chance. And this is compounded with the fact that so you have this enlightenment influence on us, the secular worldview, on top of that compounded with what are the things that our country are founded on? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of what? Most people would say that the goal of life, the meaning of life, the purpose of life is to be happy. And if you think about that, this this bumps up against a major problem when you take uh, your goal in life to be happy meshed with the fact that there is pain and suffering in this life, right? There's there's a problem. There's going to be an obstacle. If the point of life is liberty in the pursuit of happiness, well, what happens if you don't have life? If you have a terminal diagnosis, you find out you only have one year to live, if you are in an accident and are paralyzed, what happens to your worldview? What happens if you don't have liberty? You're arrested or you're put in jail or you're a refugee or you're experiencing life where you have no control about where you are born in this world. Or it's World War II and you're in a concentration camp. What happens if you don't have liberty? Then what is the point of anything? And what if you don't have happiness? What if your life is filled with failure after failure? Or you're wrestling with a clinical mental health problem, or you're experiencing just this, this deep, deep sadness that you can't seem to pull yourself out of? What happens if you have a chronic illness, or a disability that leaves you paralyzed, or you have a divorce, or you go through an, an adulterous affair, or whatever might happen that causes you to lose your happiness in this life? What does that mean for the way we find meaning? You know, most sociologists will actually point to the Western secular worldview as the worst in terms of dealing with pain and suffering. And that's because pain and suffering are then seen basically as an interruption to what the point of life is. Until I get this, until I get through this disease, or until I have a spouse, or until I get a new job, until um, anything, or if a mass tragedy hits, then your life is essentially over. There's nothing else All things are chance. And so what happens is, is in the West, we do everything possible, right, without even realizing it, to try to avoid suffering. Whether that be, um, you know, we we have seatbelts in our cars and airbags, which are good things, by the way. Um, We have insurance for everything, car insurance, home insurance. I have insurance in case I drop my phone because I drop my phone all the time. Um, Health insurance, disability insurance. We have insurance for all the things, we have supplements and vitamins and, and things that we do to try to keep us healthy and fit. And all that is fine things to have in your life. But it paints an illustration of the fact that we try to mitigate and control all these things in our life to maintain a, a form of happiness and health. But here's the deal. No matter how hard we try to control these things, at some point, pain and suffering make its way through those cracks. It's inescapable. And in the West, we often don't know how to deal with this. So we have a variety of ways to cope, whether we medicate whether by getting over busy and working long hours. Um, we're never alone. The moment a sad thought comes into our brain, instead of 
embracing that feeling, we pull out our phones, we begin to doom scroll on our phone because we don't want to feel the feeling that's rising up in us. Right? We have different ways of medicating, whether we want to escape with something physical, whether that be alcohol or some sort of substance abuse, and whether it's binging a TV series. I actually I read a recent article that said the average Netflix user watches a TV series in three days, which is crazy. It's a lot of TV. We like to escape, right, whatever the thing in our life is by diverting our attention from it so that we don't actually have to sit in it. Psychiatrists have actually questioned um, whether the, the Bible of their craft, so heard, I don't know if you've heard of this, it's called the DSM, it's the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders. Um, and what's really interesting about this is there, there's this revolutionary um, um, studies that were done that came to these conclusions that ultimately were unhelpfully medicalizing human experiences of grief and sadness. So in other words, psychotherapists and anthropologists um, were trying to say, okay, grief, sadness, all these things are negative emotions. How can we then treat the emotions with medicine as opposed to dealing with the root of grief and sadness? And he actually wrote this uh, many, like 10 years after this DSM was created. He said this, the growing influence of the DSM was one among many other social factors spreading the harmful cultural belief that much of our everyday suffering is a damaging encumbrance best swiftly removed. A belief increasingly tapping us within a worldview that regards all suffering as a purely, purely negative force in our lives. I find that last line particularly chilling. That a belief increasingly tapping us, trapping us with the worldview Again, there's that term there, worldview, that regards all suffering as a purely negative force in our lives. This is the guy who wrote the book right, on psychological disorders, and he says, we were wrong. We've done an entire disservice to the psychological field. The truth is, and we're going to see this all throughout the scriptures, is that Yes, indeed, pain and suffering are necessary, but actually, hardship can be good for us in certain ways. Uh, Viktor Frankl, perhaps you're familiar with him, he wrote the book Man's Search for Meaning. He was a Jewish neuro neurologist and psychiatrist uh, from Vienna who was taken to Auschwitz uh, during the World War II era, and, and during this time, he lost his wife and his kids who were put to death in the gas chambers. You can imagine just the amount of overwhelming grief and sorrow he experienced just in that alone. But for the next, um, basically for the rest of his life, he spent his life in hell on earth. He moved from one concentration camp to another. He experienced the horrors of all that was to come with that. But he survived. He made an observation towards, towards the end of the life. You can read it in his book. And he said, it wasn't the strong and burly men Unfortunately, none of the women made it through because they killed the women and children first, which is horrifying. Um, but he said it wasn't the strong and burly men who made it through. The ones who survived, the ones who were able to withstand the suffering and pain were the ones who found meaning in the midst of their suffering. They found a purpose for living through a living hell. And he was adamant that the point of life is not to be happy. He said the point of life is to find meaning regardless of your circumstances. To live for something that is greater than yourself. For Frankel, suffering was an opportunity to rise above the situation that we are in and to take a tragedy and to somehow turn it into a triumph. 
And the point of life is indeed to suffer well. His famous question was not, what can I get out of life? But what can life get out of me? Now, this kind of thinking is kind of turning this whole idea upside down. We live in a culture where there is self-help, self-care, ways in which we try to look inwards to make ourselves happy. And this is sort of turning that on its head. Now, Frankel, his overall idea is that if you chase happiness, you will fall short every time. But if you chase meaning, then happiness can ensue. And, you know, the truth was, he wasn't a follower of Jesus. But his teaching was very much in line with the teachings of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Both, both Old Testament writers and New Testament speak to this idea. I want to share a, a few scriptures that sort of show us this. The scripture I read originally, you'll notice it ends with, When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. There's this motif throughout the scriptures of a refiner's fire. In other words, that fire refines a precious metal into something like gold or silver. And we see this all throughout the Old Testament. I'm going to read you a few. I'm the first. It's Psalm 66, verse 10. He says, For you, God, tested us. You refined us like silver. You brought us into prison. You laid burdens on our backs, and you let people ride over our heads. We went through fire and water. There's that motif. But you brought us to a place of abundance. Isaiah 48, see, I have refined you, though not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. In Jeremiah 9, it says, therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty says. See, I will refine and test them. What else can I do because of the sin of my people? First Peter says, in all this, you greatly rejoice, though now it is now for a little while, while you may have had to suffer and grieve for all kinds of trials, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even through refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. You get the picture. There are a dozen other references I could have picked uh, throughout the scriptures that use this motif. Um, but pain, in, in essence, we'll see this over and over again, is sort of a, a way in which God meets his people. You've probably heard me quote this before, um, but as C.S. Lewis has that great line that pain is God's megaphone to a deaf world. Pain is a wake-up call that God can use to get our attention. It shows us that our loves are actually out of order. Right, see, the Buddha was right, sort of. Right, the Buddha um, said that suffering is a byproduct of desire, which I think is true. We are sad if, if maybe we don't get the thing that we want, that we desire. Maybe we're in our 40s and we desire to be married, but we are not married. We long for that. Um, that makes sense. If you're sick, what do you long for? You long to be healthy. I'm sick right now, if you can't tell. I long to be healthy again. I want to get some rest. My kids won't sleep through the night. Um, if you're poor, you desire wealth. But I think the Buddha was wrong to say, cut desire out of your life, because I don't think that's actually possible. You know, Augustine in the fourth century said that the problem isn't uh, that we desire, it's that we desire the wrong things. The right things are out of order. 
And this isn't to say that we don't love our family, that we don't love our job, that we don't love people in our life or hobbies or whatever it might be. But ultimately, it says um, that those things become our number one and we get our loves out of order. Whether it's evil or a good thing, you will always live in fear because the reality is any one of those things can be taken away from you in a moment. Your life, your liberty, your happiness can be gone in a second. And if that is the case, if our loves become disordered, then we live in this constant state of fear of what if this thing is taken away or what if I don't get the thing that's going to make me happy, whole, and complete. And so the key here is to reorder our loves, to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And suffering then becomes an actual incredible opportunity to do this, to show and to be able to demonstrate our love for Christ when everything else is taken away. So we don't eliminate desire, but we reorient it. I want to give us um, uh, five things okay, that I think uh, sort of are helpful in us to think about suffering. And so the first idea um, was that Suffering can indeed deepen our love with God. I already spoke to that just a second ago. The second is this, to deepen our character. You see all this testing language in the scriptures. Who is it for? Is it us? Are we testing God? What does all this mean? I would argue that it's like testing us, that maybe the metaphor is like a blacksmith, okay? This refiner's fire idea. You heat up the metal to see what's inside, and then you can mold it to its likeness. It can look really good on the outside, but the reality is, is when you face hardship. It takes all of your emotional energy to be able to face it, and then our true character often is revealed. We are forced to take a long, hard look in the mirror and deal with the things that are deep within us, and it's in that moment that we can do the hard things and face what's inside and grow in our character. I wrote, hardship itself does something to steal our character, S-T-E-E-L. Okay, that was lame. Um, point is this, hardship, um, it, it does something to us that allows us to see us for who we really are and then face who we truly are, and in that we can grow and become more like Christ himself. Number three, it can deepen our humility. Pain and suffering creates a depth in who we are, a grounded reality. It shows us that you are not in control and that you never were, and that is a truly humbling thing. It is easy to think that we are the captain of our own destiny. We have dreams of what we want to see for our life, but the reality is those things can change. All the control we think we have is an illusion. Sometimes it takes a difficult trial to reveal this. Number four, it can reveal in us, it can deepen our empathy. You see, hardship humbles us in a good way. It creates us in us empathy for others. If you've experienced a difficult trial, I don't know about you, but when I see someone else going through the same thing, I'm able to empathize in a new and fresh way. And so when we're able to experience difficult things, oftentimes God can use that to minister to others who are in deep pain. Um, you know, people who haven't been through pain sometimes like to help but sometimes it comes across as a little bit ingenuous, uh, trite phrases like everything happens for a reason, or hey, God's in control, don't worry, it's all going to be better. Um, you know, you, you may find out something like, maybe you find out that your spouse has a, a cancer diagnosis, and they're like, oh, 
I know exactly how you feel. My cat was sick last week or something like that, right? Like, like people want to relate. They want to be able to say the right thing, but oftentimes it falls on deaf ears because they haven't experienced suffering. And that's not to say you can't minister to someone who's suffering if you haven't suffered, but it is to say there's something different about going through those trials yourself. They're able to minister in a more deep way. Empathy gives us uh, gives people solidarity with others. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-4, Paul says, Praise be to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. This is one of the most meaning, meaningful parts of suffering. And so I would ask you this evening, Is there a moment in your life that you can point to where you would say, yeah, you indeed suffered, you experienced pain? I can point to multiple in my life. I can point to seasons of of depression that I've experienced that I can now empathize with those who are going through a mental health struggle uh, in a new way because I too know what that's like. I've experienced, my wife and I went through a season where we struggled to get pregnant and then ultimately had a miscarriage and that, that was really painful, like really, really painful. Happened at Christmas time. And now when I have conversations and I see someone who's going through that, there's a new kind of empathy in me because I know the struggle and the pain that comes with that. There was a season in my life where I experienced, uh, I was dealing with some deep anxiety and pain and I was like in middle school and like I missed um, a whole month of school just totally with this anxiety and struggle. And so I could relate to middle schoolers when I was in middle, uh, middle school youth pastor. I was able to connect with them who were dealing with those kinds of things. What can you pinpoint in your life when you look back at all your years and say, you know what, I struggled with this. I can, I can tap into that and maybe help minister to someone who's going through something similar. If you're open to the work of the Holy Spirit to use you in that way, invite the Spirit to do so. Because I believe God has called us to minister to those who are also struggling. Number five can deepen our joy. This is the great ironic twist in all of this, that suffering actually shows us what we take for granted. It exposes the depth of our entitlement that once these things that we love are taken away, we begin to celebrate the simple pleasures of life. Whether that means waking up with a roof over your head, you recognize, man, I'm going to be okay. Whether it's a long walk early in the morning, whether it's a a glass of wine with a great friend or a a meal with a family or loved one sitting around a table, just experiencing and taking, not taking for granted the simple joys of life. The things we take for granted, we begin to find joy in them again and become more joyful. The truth is nine out of 10 times when the New Testament writers talk about suffering and and grief, they, they often pair it with joy. Right? We see this, Paul does this all the time. He says, in my great heart, again, my struggle, but then he says, in thy everlasting joy. He goes back and forth between suffering and joy. I'm never, I've been in the highest of places. I've been in the lowest of places. I've known what it's like to be content, and I know what it's like to not be content. And I have found the secret to find contentment in anything, regardless of my circumstance. It's a time of celebration and lament at the same time. So, five things. It can deepen your love for God. It can deepen your character. It can deepen your humility. It can deepen your empathy. And it can deepen your joy. Nicholas Winton uh, was an incredible man. He organized 
the rescue and passage to Britain of 669 Jewish Czechoslovakian children who were destined for the Nazi death camps before World War II. Perhaps you've heard this story. It's really quite remarkable. And in this operation, it was known as the Czech Kinder Transport. Um, he was able to see all of these kids essentially risking his own life in order to help them get out of harm's way, who were essentially on a, a path to death, and free them so that they could have life. He was a guy who was not one who wanted to be patted on the back. He lived a very modest life. But in the 80, 18, 1988, they had a TV program where many of the survivors, the ones of the kids who had lived through that, were able to come and thank him in person for the very first time. And I have a quick video of this. We'll watch this, and then I'll close this out. All the letters. But back here is the list of all the children. This is Vera Diamant, now Vera Gissing. We did find her name on his list. Vera Gissing is with us here tonight. Hello, Vera. And uh, I should tell you that you are actually sitting next to Nicholas Winton. <laughs> and it was just so wonderful, so terribly, terribly touching. Can I ask, is there anyone in our audience tonight who owes their life to Nicholas Winton? If so, could you stand up, please? Sir Nicholas Winton had this quote. He said this, There is a difference between passive goodness and active goodness, which is, in my opinion, the given, giving of one's life and energy to help those in pain and suffering. It entails going out, finding and helping those in suffering and danger. And I could only do this because I myself have suffered. And I wanted to break hope for those who are suffering as well. Friends, we are hope to the world, to a hurting and suffering world. And so whether you yourself are going through a difficult season, I want you to know that you're not alone. There's a community around you here who wants to come alongside you and minister to you. Or whether you know people in your life who are indeed going through suffering. I believe that God has called us to minister to those, to come alongside those, uh, to tap into the moments when we maybe have experienced grief or sadness and to be able to have empathy and to love those who are struggling. So may God give us ears and eyes to see those who are in pain, who are lost, that may Christ draw us near to them and minister to them. And again, the, the invitation for you, if you're struggling, you're not alone. This is a place where people want to come alongside you and walk with you. Let's be the beacon of hope that Christ calls us to be in the world. Let's pray. Father, I pray that 
for those on the other side of suffering, that there would be a beacon of hope, that there is joy even in the midst of it, or that we could be uh, ones who look out, who are listening, who are watching, who are able to see those who may be in need, who may um, be desperate for even just a glimmer of hope, and that we could be like Sir Nicholas Winston, who, who gave up his life to help children uh, have safe passage and avoid suffering. Lord, help us to walk alongside those who are in grief. Help us to celebrate even in times of sadness and help us to um, see meaning in all of it. It's for your beautiful name. Amen.